in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of of sin. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We ask you, Father, to give us supple hearts that are receptive to what it is you want to say to us, what the Spirit wants to say to Faith Community Church. We ask, Father, that you would encourage us as we look at your word this morning. Enable us to leave here changed. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? So cries the man in Romans 7.24. But who is that man? Now that's the million dollar question. Is it the Apostle Paul, or is it the Apostle Paul speaking in the place of another, perhaps the whole nation of Israel? And is it Paul as a believer, or is is he speaking about his unbelieving past from the vantage point of a believer? These are highly debated questions in some circles. But I'm guessing, I'm just guessing, that most of you really aren't that interested. It's okay. It's not a problem. But since that's what I'm planning to talk about for the next 90 minutes, I'm pretty sure Logan said 90 minutes. Is that right, Logan? You now know that I'm going to preach on something relatively uninteresting. Or maybe not. Would you allow me to give some reasons why the identity of the wretched man in Romans 7 is not only interesting, but critical? How about these? What if I said that the correct identification of the wretched man in Romans 7 will help you to know whether or not you're truly saved? Or that it would enhance your day-to-day ability to be joyful and happy? Or that it will help you to conquer sin in your life, including those besetting sins that most discourage you. Or that it will help 
faith community church to more fervently love each other. Or that the correct identification will increase your longing for Christ and for His return. Would that make our time more relevant? Well, finally, what if I could say that it will help those of you here this morning that are still outside of Christ to seek Him, to seek salvation with more passion and persistence? Would that make you more apt to hang with me, given that we're going to look at some rather technical matters? I know I'm interested in those questions, so without further ado, let's get after it. Of course, Romans 7.24 is in its context, which I've just read, and the critical question, if you'll open your Bibles again, is in verse 13. Did you notice, did you notice that that question frames the entire argument for the, past, for the whole passage? question is this, is that which is good bring death to me? And that question pivoted off of verse 12. Go up one verse. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The question in verse 13 is clearly a response to the statement in verse 12, and no doubt was an objection lodged by Paul's Jewish opponents who were trying to discredit the gospel of grace. The question could be restated like this. If the law is good, and clearly it is, does that not mean that something good caused Paul's death? To put a little sharper edge to it, his enemies are throwing down the gauntlet. They're saying you can't have it both ways, Paul. Both a good law and grace. The two can't mix given the law's role in leading us to grace. But Paul won't bite. He won't embrace their false dichotomy, their false either-or construct. He responds using a very discernible four-part structure. This is some of the technical stuff, so hang with me here. In fact, it was the same structure he used back in chapter 6 twice, It was the same structure he used in chapter 7, verses 7 to 12, and it goes like this. First, there's an objection, which is voiced in the form of a question. That was what we see in verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? Then there's an answer. That's also in verse 13. May it never be. Then there's a substantiation of that answer, which took us from the end of verse 13 all the way to the beginning of verse 25. And that answer is sin, not the good law, caused Paul's death and thus showed itself to be utterly sinful by enslaving and killing the one wishing to obey it. And then finally, an implication, the end of verse 25. So then, Paul, as an unregenerate, law-loving Jew, serves the law with his mind, but he serves the law of sin with his unregenerate, enslaving flesh, which results in exonerating the law from this charge. So Romans 7, 13 to 25 argues for the real cause of death, 
And its goal is to exonerate the law and even further to exonerate grace. Sin caused Paul's death using something holy and righteous and good, sort of as a magnifying glass, to expose it in order to show how sinful sin really is. It's kind of like this. This is a poor illustration, but I think it can work. If I told one of my boys, I have two boys and three girls, all grown up now, but if when they were younger, if I told one of my boys to hit his sister, and he refused, his disobedience would not really be on display, would it? You would say, well, no, he disobeyed a bad rule, a bad command. However, if I told one of my boys to protect his sister from bullies, and he refused, now his disobedience stands out. It's on display, isn't it? Because it's a noble command with which most would joyfully concur. That's right. So God's holy law exposed sin as utterly sinful and the cause of Paul's death. Death. Now in helping us to identify this wretched man, it's important that we define the term that Paul used. Again, look at it in verse 13. He said, did that which is good then bring death to me? Now this isn't a new concept. If we had time I'd unpack the whole unit starting in Romans 5 verse 1 and going all the way to the end to verse 39. Some 15 times the word death occurs. But you're familiar with the word death in the nearer context, like Romans 6.23. And by the way, it always means the same thing. But let's start with Romans 6.23. You know this verse, for the wages of sin is death. Or verse 5 of chapter 7, look at that while you've got your Bibles open. Paul says, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Or Romans 8, 1 and 2, you can look at that while I read. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Or verse 6 in that same chapter, for the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life. So what does Paul mean when he asks the question, did that which is good then bring death to me? This is the question that controls the entire passage. You can't divorce the passage. You know, some Bibles split it between verses 13 and 14. They've got little subheadings. Do any of you have one of those Bibles? My New American Standard Bible, which is what I've read for the last 50 years, that Bible splits between verses 13 and 14. I love the New American Standard, but I like to write the editors and say, you really blew it here, guys. Because verse 13 is the question that introduces the rest of the passage. So if your Bible has a split after verse 13, you need to go home, take a big black magic marker. I know you'll love doing this to your Bible. <clears throat> right through that. Don't let that subheading exist. I'm just kidding. That's a joke light. I'm just kidding. Don't do that, kids. I'll really get in trouble if you go home and say, well, the pastor said to do it. No, you see, death in verse 13 
has to carry through for the rest of the passage, including the wretched man who cries out, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death. Death is the opposite of life. In Romans 5 through 8, death means eternal death, condemnation, to be eternally cursed. So Paul's controlling question in Romans 7 verse 13 could be restated like this. Did the good law, given its partnership with sin, its collaboration with sin, he's not denying that, by the way, did the good law cause my condemnation? You see, the entire passage, Romans 7, 13 to 25, is concerned with how sinners are condemned before God, their relationship to the law, and how that partnered with their sin to condemn them. It has nothing to do with the Christian and his life, but it has everything to do with the non-Christian and his death. And thus, the wretched man in verse 24 is unsaved. He's a non-Christian. Now, some of you may say, well, that's not how I've usually read this passage, and I understand that. And you are free to disagree with me. You're free to be wrong. Um, but there are some good objections to that interpretation, that the wretched man is unsaved. And we want to look at those in a moment. But first, let me strengthen that interpretation by looking at some other things in our passage. That the wretched man is actually an unconverted man, I think is clear from our passage itself. Look at verse 14 of chapter 7. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. He's a slave to sin. That's what it says in verse 14. And then he backs that up in verse 15 when he says, I do or practice, another translation says, I do the very thing I hate. He backs it up in verse 19. The evil I do not want is what I keep on doing or practicing, another translation says. Oh, he backs it up again in verse 23. This one's particularly strong. Even though he concurs with the law of God in his inner man, he sees another law waging war against the law of his mind, and get this, making me captive, enslaved, imprisoned to the law of sin that dwells in my members. The wretched man is a slave to sin, and Paul has already told us that this is what characterized our lives before we were saved. Look back to Romans chapter 6, and I want to pick it up in verse 20. He's consistent with his slavery language throughout this whole unit. Verse 20, for when you were slaves of sin, that's what we used to be, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death, judgment, condemnation. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Brothers and sisters, the wretched man in Romans 7.24 cries out because he's still in bondage. He's still enslaved. He's fast bound in sin and nature's night. He's willing to obey, but unable to do so. He practices evil. And Paul says in Galatians 5 that those who practice the deeds of the flesh shall not inherit the kingdom of God. John corroborates that in 1 John when he says, no one who is born of God practices, that's the operative word, practices sin. No one who is born of God practices sin. Oh dear one, don't confuse struggle with slavery. We struggle with sin, yes, every day. But we're not enslaved to sin. The wretched man in Romans 7.24 was wretched precisely because he was enslaved to sin, just as we once were. But what happened to us? If you know Christ, what happened to you? The Spirit of life, the law of the Spirit of life set you free from the law of sin and death. That's right. That's what happened. Our chains fell off. Our heart was free. We rose, went forth, and followed Thee. That's right. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And again, some of you are good students of the Bible. You're saying, wait a minute, Wes. I know the punky parts in your argument. I know the weak spots in this exegesis. Would you mind if we looked at a couple of those? No, I'm happy to do that. I came prepared to do that. One of the objections to seeing the wretched man as an unsaved, unconverted, unregenerate person is the use of the present tense starting in verse 14. Did you notice? He switched to the present tense. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh. Up to that point, he'd been using the past tense or the aorist tense. Now he switches to the present tense. And that is regularly, my wife will tell you, I own just about every commentary uh, on the book of Romans. I buy ones that I have no interest in reading just so I can have them on my shelf. That's, that's the problem with pastors. They're addicted to books. And this argument has been an argument that has been used for centuries. And it continues to be used. The idea that it's present tense, it must be describing Paul in his present life. That's the logic. Why is this not the present tense in the sense that it describes Paul's present tense? life. It is the present tense, but it doesn't describe Paul in his present life. Here's the reason. Because often, in Greek, often they use present tense verbs to draw the reader into the drama as if the reader were actually there. It's called the historical present tense. And Paul uses the present tense to make the retelling of his enslavement more vivid, more compelling. I think to particularly show how sinful sin really is. 
You know, we do that in English, don't we? I mean, Logan told you that we just saw the birth of our 17th grandchild. I could use present tense verbs to describe that past event. I'll give it a shot. How about this? So you see, my, my daughter-in-law enters the birthing center about 1 a.m. in the morning. She, she labors for about 90 minutes. She has the baby at 3 a.m., and she leaves the birthing center at 5, just four hours after arriving. Wow, she's really good at having babies. Well, see, I used all present tense verbs there describing a past event. It, you get the general idea. It's a way to vivify the narrative. And that's all that Paul is doing here. He's using the present to intensify his past. But there's another objection, I think a meteor objection, one grounded in deeply held theological positions going back to St. Augustine and the Reformers. Luther expressed this theological position well in his commentary on Romans uh, chapter 7. He said, the spiritual man fights against his flesh and deplores that he cannot do what, as a new man, he desires to do. The carnal man does not fight at all, but readily yields to sin. Calvin concurs in his commentary on Romans, and I quote, we must observe that this conflict of which the apostle speaks does not exist in man before he is renewed by the Spirit of God. For man, left to his own nature, is wholly borne along by his lusts without any resistance. End of quote. You see, they're denying that Romans 7 could be a non-Christian because there's resistance, there's conflict. And they're saying that the doctrine, we would call it the doctrine of total depravity, does not allow for that. For someone who is totally depraved, someone who is unconverted, someone who is lost in their sin, a slave to their sin, there's no resistance at all. There's no fight. Romans 7 must be a believer as a result. But is that right? Are unbelievers unable to fight? Are they devoid of conflict? Is it impossible that they might delight in or desire to obey God's law? Is that true? To say it another way, does the anthropology of Augustine, and I must say the later Augustine because he flipped positions late in his life, does the anthropology of Augustine, Luther, and Calvin square with Scripture? Are unbelievers unable even to desire what is right and obey God's law? I don't think so, and here's why. Three words, the Exodus generation. The Exodus generation. What do we know about that generation that came out of Egypt? We know several things. First, we know that they were clearly lost. Are you clear on that? Are you clear that essentially every person that came out from Egypt who saw the plagues in Egypt, all of those miracles, who ate manna from heaven, who drank water from the rock, who saw the Red Sea opened up and the Egyptian army destroyed. Are you clear that they were lost? Caleb, Joshua, 
They were the only two that went into the promised land. Of course, Moses didn't, Aaron didn't, Miriam didn't. They weren't lost. But everyone else was lost. Are you clear on that? Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3, just to make sure we're on the same page. This is a very important point if we're going to really understand who that wretched man is. Hebrews 3. I'll pick it up in verse 16. Hebrews chapter 3, starting in verse 16. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to, whose, but to those who were disobedient? We see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Well, look at how he says it in chapter 4. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. So the gospel came to them came to the readers here, and it came to the Exodus generation. But the message, the gospel they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. They were lost. They didn't have faith. They didn't enter the physical rest of the promised land, which pictured their failure to enter true spiritual rest salvation. So the first thing we must know about this generation is they were lost. The Exodus generation was lost. But secondly, we must know that they desperately desired to obey God's law. As the covenant terms were recited in Exodus 19, and as the covenant was ratified in Exodus 24, the Exodus generation passionately pledged its intent to obey. Here's what they said on more than one occasion. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. Do you see that? There's a desire to do the Word of God, to obey the law given to Moses. And Moses interprets that. If you turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 5, he interprets that uh, by his interaction with the Lord. Deuteronomy chapter 5. Let me pick it up in verse 27. You remember the people were terrified because they heard the word of the Lord. It, it terrified them. And they kind of put their hands over their ears. They said, we don't, we don't want to hear his voice anymore lest we die. So they instruct Moses, starting in verse 27. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 27. Here's what they say to Moses. Go near and hear all that the Lord our God will say and speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to you and we will hear it and do it. So you follow what's going on? You go, you talk to God, bring back to us the words. We will hear it and we will do it. Now look at what it says. And the Lord, Moses tells them, and the Lord heard your words when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, I have heard the words of this people which they have spoken to you. 
They are right in all that they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always to fear me and to keep my commandments that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. God is recognizing that there's a willingness. See, Luther and Calvin, heroes to me. But Luther and Calvin, following the later Augustine, says, no willingness. There's not a willingness. God here certifies that there was a willingness with this lost generation, but there was not the ability. You see, they were under the old covenant, and the old covenant did not provide what it demanded, did it? It did not provide the resources to carry out what it demanded, what the law demanded. The law was written then on tablets of stone. They needed it to be written on tablets of human hearts. They needed new covenant hearts of flesh, which were not only willing, but able to obey. Not old covenant hearts of stone, which, though willing, were unable to obey. And the same is true for the wretched man in Romans 7. He's willing. The the passage oozes with willingness, doesn't it? He's willing, but he's utterly unable, which leads to his cry, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from the body of this death? Who will rescue me from condemnation? Ah, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yes, the Spirit, the law of the Spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. All right, that's all very interesting. Hopefully I didn't put anybody to sleep. If so, wake up. Because here's the, here's the good part. The good part is, so what? Why does it matter? How does it affect the way that you and I think, the way that you and I live? I think two things. First, it encourages unbelievers to seek Christ more diligently. And second, it helps believers to live for Christ more successfully. There's nothing wrong with success. We want to be successful when it comes to holiness, don't we? But first, it encourages unbelievers to to seek Christ more diligently. Let me say this. When you identify the wretched man as an unbeliever, it can actually be an encouragement for unbelievers to seek the freedom that is found only in Jesus Christ, even as he was doing in Romans 7 as he looked back on his life before he was saved. Listen to me, dear unbeliever. If you're here and you're outside of Christ, please listen to me. The Bible says that you're enslaved to your sin. Oh, you may be able to control your outward demeanor well enough, but you can't control your heart where sin dwells. And thus anger and lust, 
envy, coveting, selfishness, all these symptoms of your slavery are alive and well in your heart, and you cannot free yourself. No amount of self-help, no Eastern religions, nothing can free you from sin which has control of your heart. But the Son, Jesus Christ, by His death, burial, and resurrection can set you free from the guilt and power of sin. Isn't that good news, dear unbeliever? That's good news. If you will but believe, if you will but trust in Jesus Christ, sin's penalty will be forgiven, sin's power will be broken, for if the Son shall make you free, as we sang, you shall be free indeed. Not to mention that death will no longer have you by the throat. The fear of death will no longer have you by the, by the throat. You know, Death is scary. The older I get, the scarier it seems. Because it just seems more real. When I was in my 20s and 30s, I assumed I was invincible. I would have never said that, but I live like that. And now it's like, I'm pretty sure I'm not. (laughs) We're all marching to the grave, aren't we? And when Christ sets you free, He sets you free from that enslaving fear of death. Hallelujah. And so I say to you, dear one, outside of Christ, don't remain a prisoner to your anger, to your lust, to your envy, to your jealousy, to your selfishness, to your enslaving fear of death. Don't remain a prisoner to those things. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved from sin's tyranny. I call on you to repent of your sin and turn to Christ today and bask in His marvelous grace. Dear believing friends, the starting point for holiness, I believe, is embracing who you are in Christ. You are not the wretched man in Romans 7.24. Now listen, as Logan said, I founded and was a senior pastor of a large church in New England. Large in my area is 400 people. And and did that for over 30 years. And I experienced the famous jingle many times. Do you know the jingle? I bet you do. To live above with saints we love, oh, that'll be glory. But to live below with saints we know, well, that's another story. (laughs) I've experienced that many times, many times. I'm not naive about the fact that believers, including myself, struggle with sin. I know you struggle with sin. And I know that that can make life very hard on your fellow brothers and sisters. It can make life very hard for your leaders. And when your leaders sin, that can make life very hard for a congregation. I know how that works. I understand it. You see, the stench of our sin continues to linger 
and it dissipates very slowly. You know what it's like? Sin's presence. We've been saved from sin's penalty. We've been delivered from sin's power, but sin's presence is like a, is, is still all over us. It's kind of like a dead skunk. I know that's, that's a little, I, I hesitated to give that illustration. I thought it just might be a little too earthy, but these are Kansas City folk. I don't think, I don't think it will bother them too much. It's like a dead skunk. You know how when you go by a dead skunk after it's recently died, how strong the odor is? I mean, you can, it seems like you can smell it for miles. I don't know if you can actually smell it for miles, but it seems that way. And then over time, it dissipates, doesn't it? Well, let me up the ante, because my daughter has a dog, a cute dog. In fact, I have designated myself its grandpa. My daughter has a dog, and that dog found a dead skunk in its yard and then proceeded to wallow in that skunk. Its head, its face, ugh. I don't know how many times my son-in-law and my daughter have washed that dog, you know, given it intravenous injections of tomato juice. I mean, it's <laughs> tried everything, and it's now been over a month, and the smell is still there. It's much fainter, but it hasn't dissipated entirely. That's kind of like us. We, even if we came to Christ at an early age, we wallowed in Adam's sin. It completely coated our hearts. And so sin's presence is real. And the stench of sin is dissipating slowly. It is dissipating, but it's dissipating slowly, isn't it? Nevertheless, nevertheless, dear one, you are a new creation in Christ. Old things like your bondage to sin have passed away, and all things like your spirit-driven new identity have become new. God has given you a spirit of power, a spirit of love, a spirit of self-control, and greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. You are no longer a slave to sin. You are no longer under, under its tyranny. You are free to just say no to sin by the power that works within you. You're not the wretched man of Romans 7, but a new creation with a new heart created by a new spirit, now willing and able to walk in newness of life. That is who you are. That is your identity in Christ. And I think that leads, and I close with these three things. First, to praise. I grew up in Columbus. I went to Ohio State. I'm a devout Buckeye fan, I hope that doesn't offend anybody. You're probably a devout Kansas City Chief fan. That doesn't offend me a bit. And we can really get excited for a victory, can't we? I mean, last night I was watching the Notre Dame game. They scored a touchdown. I jumped out of my chair and did a fist pump. I was in a hotel room by myself, but still... I was excited. Now, if a football team victory, whatever the team is, 
If that can excite us like that, how much more should our victory over sin's penalty and power cause us to be exuberant? I mean, God has freed us. Think about it with me, if you would. God has freed us from sin's awful penalty. You and I have been rescued. Are you clear on this? We've been rescued from the lake of fire, a place the Bible describes as eternal torment. That's not a make-believe place. That's not the Disney Channel. That's reality. We've been delivered from the lake of fire, and we have the sure promise that death, including our own individual deaths, will be swallowed up in victory. The trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible. I don't know about you. Now that's something to cheer about. And not only that, He's freed us from sin's enslaving power. You and I are no longer slaves to sin, but to righteousness, which is why the Scriptures enjoin us to continually offer up a sacrifice of praise. We were the wretched man, desperate for freedom, but not anymore. Now here's a real reason, isn't it? To rejoice, to be happy. You know, The older you get, and maybe this is particularly true of men, I think it is, the older you get, the more tempted you get to become grumpy. I I don't want to grow into a grumpy old man. Maybe I've already passed into that state. I'm trying to get out of that state. Here's something that can help the grumpies, something that can cause us to be happy and joyful, that Christ has delivered us from this thing and allow us to praise God with all of our hearts. In fact, maybe even allow us to get a little emotional when we read Psalm 150. Do you mind if I read that to you? Psalm 150. If you want to turn, you can. It concludes all the Psalms. In a sense, it's the final point that the Psalms are trying to make. Let me just read it to you. I I confess, I read it and I feel a little guilty because my heart's not quite where this psalm is. And I realize it's because I haven't really embraced my new identity in Christ. I'm not reveling in who I am now in Christ as a new creation. Look at what the psalmist says. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with the trumpet sound. Praise Him with lute and harp. Praise Him with tambourine and dance. Praise Him with strings and pipe. Praise Him with sounding cymbals. Praise Him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. I know we're reformed, but maybe we should be a little more Pentecostal. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised for His already deliverance from sin's penalty and sin's power. New identity leads to a happier life marked by praise and thanksgiving. It also leads to a holier life. Why is that? Let me encourage you, if you're struggling with sin, and that sin seems to keep tripping you up. I want to encourage you. I don't want to guilt you. I want to encourage you. You see, as a new creature, you have a new heart that's inscribed by the Spirit with God's law, which enables you to obey the new commandment. 
Remember Jesus gave the new commandment, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. You see, you were called to freedom. Freedom to serve one another in love. And by the power that resides in you, dear believer, you are now able to fulfill that calling. You couldn't before, but you can now, not perfectly, but characteristically, usually. Romans 6.12 says it this way, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies that you should obey its lusts. Do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies that you should obey its lusts. Do you hear the freedom refrain implied in that command? You see, you're not the wretched man of Romans 7. You're a new creature, free now to submit to the law of love. Now that's liberation. Freedom to do what you ought to do. We have that freedom. The Son has set us free. We're free to do what we ought to do, what we always knew to do, but we're unable to do, what God commands us to do. That's freedom, not perfect, but normative and increasing. Finally, this new identity, I think, helps us in our prayer lives. Why is that? I think it's because God opened our eyes to unseen realities regarding His kingdom. When we were set free, our eyes were opened to behold Him and to behold the unseen realities of His kingdom. And we understand that that reality, that kingdom is accessed by prayer. That's right. That's how you do business in that kingdom, is through prayer. So prayer now becomes highly valued. But second, though we're free from sin's penalty and power, we're not yet free from the awful stench of sin's presence. We are free to behold Christ and be transformed into his image, as 2 Corinthians 3.18 says. But the Bible also says that we see through a mirror dimly, don't we? We see through a glass darkly. Our sight is distorted by our sin, by sin's presence. But one day we shall be like him, and for we shall see him as he is. And thus, what do we pray? We pray, thy kingdom come. We're asking God to fulfill his final promises to us. And we groan in unity with creation and with the Spirit for the redemption of our bodies, don't we? And in the meanwhile, we petition God to help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And glory to God, we have been ushered into the throne room and beckoned boldly to draw near to God through Jesus Christ that we might receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. He's beckoned us to come and find mercy and grace in time of need. Those are all marvelous incentives for prayer and something that is embraced with that new identity. Dear believer, you are not the wretched man of Romans 7, desperate for freedom from the power of sin. 
But you are the believer of Romans 8, desperate for freedom from the presence of sin. And thus we pray earnestly, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your Son. We, we cannot fathom the plan that determined that you would sacrifice your only begotten Son, that he would suffer the guilt and penalty for our sin though he remained sinless and that you would be satisfied with that payment on our behalf for all who believe. We want to just say thank you. And we want to offer to you our lives as living and holy sacrifices, which is the only reasonable thing that new creations can do. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name.